inquiring minds want to know, God, I want to know, we want to know, we want to understand, we want to see into the heavens, we want to be able to grasp truth and reality. We want to see you, we want to know. We ask that you would help us in this regard and in this endeavor through your word. Open our eyes to truth and to reality. Give us ears that are good to hear and hearts that are warmed and receptive soil to your word. I pray and ask, uh, as I always do, that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or inconsistent or incongruent in any way with your word, may they just be passed over, not heard, forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the last two weeks, we read from chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel and our journey through Mark's Gospel about Jesus taking his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, up this high mountain where they were met, surprisingly, by two men, Moses and Elijah, from the past. Uh, a voice speaks, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Uh, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus have some conversations, and then Jesus and his disciples head down. Moses and Elijah disappear. They head down the mountain. Jesus on the way down talks with them about resurrection. Again, that he will be uh, killed, that he will suffer, that he will be persecuted, that he will be killed, and then that he will again rise, resurrection. They don't understand this. They're afraid to ask but they go on with Jesus down the mountain. That's where we pick up the story this morning in chapter 9, verse 14. Listen closely. We believe and understand this is God's word. When they, they being Jesus and his disciples, Peter, James, and John, when they came, down, came to the other disciples who were at the bottom of the mountain, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law, the scribes, the uh, rulers, arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them, Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, Rabbi, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him to the ground. My son foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? And there maybe is this deep sigh with that. How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. The boy fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus, quite calmly, asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the boy's father answered, and presumably, presumably that means from a very, very young age because he's still a boy. From childhood, the boy's father answered, the spirit has often thrown him into the fire or water trying to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Have mercy on us. Literally, have compassion on us. Have mercy on us. And is it, isn't it interesting that we see the father's great love for his son here because he doesn't say, have mercy on my son, but rather have mercy on us. He's so wrapped up in his son's suffering. He's suffering with his son, compassion with passio, with suffering. Have mercy on us. It's beautiful. 
Verse 22, the spirit is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. You unbelieving generation, Jesus said a moment ago, and now everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father explained, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And back in May on confirmation class, we jumped forward. I don't know if you remember, but we jumped forward several chapters in Mark's gospel so that we could look at this passage because often when a person is at that age and going through that experience and process of confirmation class and learning and ask, asking questions and looking for answers, they're in that place of, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I understand, but I need and want to grow more. I've got answers, but not all of the answers. I've got some answers, but I'm still missing some pieces. It feels like, I believe, help Help me in my unbelief. And I think if we're all honest, it's not just confirmation class in middle school and high school when we experience that same dialectic or paradox. It explains our story too somehow, even as grown-ups. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I understand. I don't fully understand. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And now at verse 25, the action shifts, shifts back to Jesus. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked kind of quickly before everyone shows up. He rebuked the impure spirit or the unclean spirit or evil spirit. Those are synonymous terms in Mark's gospel. You deaf and mute spirit, Jesus said, I command you, come out of this boy and never enter him again. And Jesus speaks not only with confidence, but also with authority and with power, which we've seen emphasized so much in the first eight chapters of of Mark's gospel, Jesus has authority and Jesus has power. And Mark's readers are not surprised and we're not surprised and Jesus' disciples weren't surprised and those in the crowd weren't surprised at what happens then because they've seen Jesus cast out demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits before and many times. The boy looked so much like a corpse then that many said, he's dead, he's dead. But Jesus looked... Look, took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. And the Greek word translated here as lifted him is anesti, which means to raise up, to cause to be raised up, to raise from the dead, to come back to life, to bring back to life as if he's reaching into the grave and lifting up. Resurrection which Jesus, as I said a moment ago, spoke with his disciples about just a little bit before on their way down the mountain, and they don't understand, and they're afraid to ask, what could this mean? What could Jesus be talking about? And Jesus practically and effectively shows them what this means, what this looks like. And they were afraid to ask. And Jesus shows them because... It's important to Jesus that they fully understand and they are in this process, this journey of doing just that. They are growing in faith. They are growing in understanding. They are seeing and they are learning. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately and this public miracle, private debrief thing happens several times in Mark's gospel. There's a public event and then Jesus gets alone with his disciples or they get alone with him and they've got the chance. We don't understand. What did you mean? What happened there? Tell us. 
And Jesus teaches his apprentices. Why couldn't we drive it out, they asked. Jesus replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. And that really feels like the focal point of this passage. Verse 29, it's sort of the climax, the last bit, the end of the story, the punchline, if this was a joke. This kind can only come out by prayer. Jesus' disciples have been with Jesus, watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, learning from Jesus, and more recently beginning to put into practice the things of Jesus. And now when Jesus is away on a mountain retreat with Peter, James, and John, the rest of the disciples decide in good faith to continue with Jesus' ministry, which included healing while he was away. And certainly they assumed they thought Jesus would be okay with this. He would be good with this. He might even be pleased with this. His goal, of course, was not only to teach them, but to empower them to carry on the ministry on earth that he had. But they weren't able to rid this boy of the evil spirit that taunted him, that toyed with him, that tortured him. They tried their best, but they were not successful. And so confusion ensues, and along with that, disagreement. And then along comes Jesus, and he, rather easily it seems, heals the boy. Resolution, completion, end of story, except that Jesus' disciples want to know why that was so easy for Jesus, but seemingly impossible for him. Why couldn't we drive it out? And it was a good and fair question to which Jesus replies, this kind can only come out by prayer. This kind can only come out by prayer. But what did Jesus mean? What does that mean? Is there a special kind of spirit, evil spirit, demon, unclean spirit that only comes out by prayer, but other kinds that come out out through mere commands or by force or through medicines or cleaning products or through non-FDA approved therapies or techniques? Was this particular spirit a variant of some sort, maybe from India, maybe from Ecuador, or Tyre, or Sidon, or the Decapolis? Was this kind of spirit particularly feisty, or difficult, or strong, or resistant to conventional treatments, and so also now requires prayer? Is that what Jesus is saying? It seems to be. And yet Jesus himself, as you notice, didn't pray. Jesus just spoke. Jesus commanded Mark wrote, Jesus commanded, and then he takes the boy's hand, and he lifts him up, and the spirit is gone. He is healed. Is this kind only coming out by prayer? If this kind only comes out by prayer, why didn't Jesus pray? Why did the spirit come out without Jesus praying? Well, maybe if you're one with the Father, maybe if the fullness of God dwells in you, maybe if you're Son of God, maybe if you're Messiah, you don't have to pray because you already possess all the power and all the authority needed to cast out such a demon. So maybe it's just us, Jesus' disciples, his students, his apprentices, his followers who need to pray. And so we pray. And we believe, as many of you, most of you, a lot of you nodded at the beginning, prayer works. Prayer works. Prayer changes things, yes. And then in our experience, sometimes often, nothing happens. Sometimes when we pray, nothing happens. Something we hope will happen, nothing seems to happen, nothing seems to change. The evil spirit or whatever it is, that thing that we're praying about, remains. 
Four months ago, we got a call in the church office from a man named Desmond. He said he described himself as a Christian with much faith, and clearly he did have much faith. And he had an extended family member who was in a catatonic state. Her name was Shazi. She was unresponsive. She was lying in her home, not moving. They didn't know what was wrong with her. He thought she must have some sort of spirit, some sort of evil spirit, some sort of unclean spirit. Her family had no idea what was going on, and so he called us and said, is anyone there able to pray? Would someone pray with me? Could someone pray for me? Could someone... And several of us said, yes, sure, we'd be glad to. Let us pray with you and for her. And so we traveled to the home, the family's home, where she was at that time. And they welcomed us into her home, and we went into the bedroom where she was lying, almost unresponsive, and we prayed, and we said the right words, and we prayed with heart and we prayed with sincerity and we prayed with authenticity and we prayed over and over and we prayed loudly and we prayed softly and we prayed gently and we invited God's spirit to be with us and we depended on God in prayer and we asked and we sought and we knocked and nothing happened nothing happened nothing that we expected and we expected and we hoped and we trusted and we believed But nothing that we could detect happened. We looked closely. We listened carefully. We persisted. And Shazi did not speak. She did not get up. She opened her eyes. But remained largely unresponsive. This kind can only come out by prayer. But maybe just because this kind or some kind can only come out by prayer doesn't mean that every kind always comes out by prayer. Or that this kind itself always comes out with prayer, through prayer, when someone prays. Maybe certain kinds of spirits only come out by prayer, but they don't always come out by prayer. And differently, maybe there was and is more to prayer than simply speaking words. I'm aware in this passage how important and even crucial was and is absolutely prayer, but also belief. And believing, as you know, means to trust and to live as if something is fully true. To fully live as as if something is fully true. Believing. Verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus said. Everything is possible for one who believes. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief, says the boy's father. And over in Matthew's gospel, which gives a longer and more detailed account of many of Jesus' encounters, Jesus is recorded as saying also to his disciples at that time in that space in response to their question, why couldn't we drive it out? Because you have so little faith, Jesus says, because you have so little faith. What if for Jesus the heart and true substance of prayer was not speaking words, but instead belief, faithing, trusting? Jonathan Edwards uh, gets a bad rap for sinners in the hands of an angry God, but is widely regarded as America's greatest theologian. He once wrote, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. True authentic prayer and faith go hand in hand. Prayer and faith, prayer and faith. I've long thought that maybe the two greatest expressions of faith 
are giving and praying, giving sacrificially and praying fervently, of giving in a way that hurts, of great giving generously, of letting go of our stuff and in that trusting God, and of spending time, lots of time, in devoted, focused prayer and in that way trusting God, giving generously, sacrificially, praying, our expressions, and closely united to faith. True authentic prayer and faith go hand in hand. Authentic faith or belief in God is the foundation of prayer. And Jesus, it could be argued, was looking for here faith, belief, trust, manifest or exhibited in prayer as prayer. Clearly faith is the main point of verses 17 through 27 here. Why would faith not also be the main point then of verses 28 and 29? where Jesus speaks of prayer. Faith and prayer go hand in hand. A prayer is not always all about getting what one wants, though the father in Mark 9, the father of the boy, certainly hopes for his son's healing through Jesus. But authentic and appropriate prayer is not so much about getting what one wants as it is about what getting what God wants, or at least wanting what God wants or at least beginning to get on the same page with God. Prayer in Mark's gospel is not pious manipulation of God to get what we want. But in Mark's gospel, it is communion with God in the wilderness where Satan is confronted and overcome. It is wrestling alone in the night to submit one's own will to that of God. Yet not what I will, but what you will, Jesus prays in the garden. The secret of prayer is not getting what you want done in heaven, but rather getting what heaven wants done on earth. In the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, prayer is an offering up of our desire unto God for things agreeable to his will and the name of Christ. Again, prayer is an offering up of our desire unto God for things agreeable to his will. The Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote, the function of prayer is not to influence God as much as it is to change the nature of the one who prays. It's an interesting thought about prayer and faith and trust in prayer and the integration of those two. Richard Foster wrote, to pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we're unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. And Jesus would also have his disciples and the boy's father and the crowd see, realize, and know that they themselves on their own, by themselves, did not possess power to cast out an evil spirit. But only God's power working through them, with them, in them, integrated, together, unified, union. And eventually exerted by Jesus was able to free this boy from that demon. God cannot be manipulated by prayer or controlled by prayer. God's hand cannot be forced, but rather in prayer we come into communion with God and God invites us in believing prayer and trusting prayer to partner with God in bringing about his will and his time and in his way. And that we trust and are called to trust when we pray. We're not always going to get what we want or what we ask for or what we demand when we pray and If you're like me, that's probably a really good thing in retrospect. And yet Jesus would say prayerlessness results in powerlessness. 
Our lives and throughout the Gospel of Mark in a variety of ways are to be immersed in prayer that trusts God and that entrusts our lives to God. Jesus' disciples could do nothing on their own apart from Jesus. Neither could the boy's father. Neither could the crowds, which brings to mind Jesus' words in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person remains in me and I in him, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We don't know why sometimes the things that seem within God's will that we pray for with faith don't happen. God doesn't bring them about. We don't have good answers for that. I don't know. But I do know that God is trustworthy, that God is powerful, that God has done and can do bring about things for which there is no other explanation except his power and his authority and his goodness and his grace and his love. The Apostle Paul, who's at the top of all of the disciples in some ways, right? A pinnacle of faith and strength and devotion and love has some sort of metaphorical thorn in his side, in his flesh, that is ailing him, dragging him down, a frustration, an annoyance, a pain, a suffering. And he prays multiple times, God, take this away, heal me, cast this out. May I be done with this, please. And if anyone's earned the right to have that prayer answered in the way they want, in the way they pray, it was the Apostle Paul, no? Yes, And yet it didn't, and Paul's message in the end of 2 Corinthians was God's grace, though, is sufficient for me, even in my weakness. God's grace is sufficient, even if I don't get what I prayed for. Even if I don't get what I trust God for in faith, he is with me, he is powerful. He will see me through this and see me through this to the end. Henry Nouwen wrote, prayer when we are faithful to it and practice it at regular times slowly leads us to an experience of rest and opens us to God's active presence. I'm going to read that again. Prayer, when we are faithful to it and practice it at regular times, slowly leads us to an experience of rest, trusting rest, and opens us to God's active presence. In other words, to seeing And maybe participating in and being a part of what God is actively doing. Because God actively does. This passage is a reminder among other things. That God cannot be manipulated. That even disciples. Even close followers of Jesus. Even faithful people. Need to live in faithful dependence on God. Often and usually through prayer. We merit nothing on our own. We gain nothing on our own. Apart from him, Jesus said in John 15, we can do nothing. And that idea also calls us to the table behind me where we acknowledge everyone who comes to that table must. That apart from God, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we merit nothing. Apart from him, we have no credentials. Apart from him, we have no power. If he's up on the mountain and we're trying to do things on our own, 
without praying, without seeking, without listening, without wanting to be in communion and dependence on him, we have no hope. But in him we have great hope. And our coming to this table proclaims that loudly and boldly. And Jesus is our hope for this life against demons, against illness, against suffering. And in a life to come, we have one great hope. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, in our world today, we are continually aware of things spinning out of control, of things going off of the rails, of hurricanes and war and disease and hate, of brokenness, of fighting and infighting, of tension, of disdain. In our country, in our community, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in Afghanistan, and in countries around the world, where disease and anger and hurt and fear are rampant. We want to see all of that changed, heal. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your shalom. We want to see heaven come to earth. We've tried our best to pull it off on our own as human beings and utterly failed. Small victories, yes, but broadly failure. To love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to live generously, to live kindly, to live with mercy. Help us as individuals, as the church, as a nation, as a people engrafted into your people and your family in Christ and by Christ. Help us, we pray. Have mercy upon us. Heal us, forgive us, restore to us the joy of your salvation. These things we pray with hope, in trust, faithing as best we can. In the name of Jesus, amen.